Today's word comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enable him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of God. You know, it's a, it's a real joy to be here. Um, you may not realize, but you are the fruit of prayers. Uh, we have prayed for Revive Presbyterian Church for a long time, uh, even before it existed. And so it's really, it's a joy and it's a privilege to be able to, to come and be with you and uh, see that uh, God is at work here. And uh, why, why not? Shouldn't we expect him to be, right? Uh, he, he actually hears us and uh, he actually acts in response to our cries to him. So uh, I'm just very grateful to be able to be with you this morning. I want to begin by... Uh, telling you a story, and uh, this story is from a few years ago. Uh, I got a text from my wife, her name is Mindy, and uh, this text included a video. And the video was of my middle daughter, uh, Jaden, who at the time was five years old, uh, walking in our front door with another five-year-old from her kindergarten class named Lupe. And underneath the video, my wife wrote this, so Jaden brought home a friend today, surprise face emoji, I had no idea this was happening. Now, that's a little frightening. Your daughter comes home from school with some other kid, and mom doesn't know anything about this. But the scarier thing is this, Lupe's mom didn't know this was happening either. So you can only imagine the terror and the fear that Lupe's mother experienced when all the children were getting off the bus at the bus stop and there is no Lupe to be found anywhere. So to make matters worse, we didn't know how to get in touch with Lupe's mom 
and Lupe didn't know her last name. So it was hard to figure out, call the school, we have a Lupe, right? And, and we were trying to think through this. So Mindy and I began to think an Amber Alert has probably already gone out and my congregation is going to see pictures of us on the evening news, handcuffed, being put in the back of a police car for abducting a child. But the saving grace was this. About a week before, my wife had actually met Lupe's mom. And as they were talking, they talked about having a play date sometime. And uh, when Lupe's mom called the school, the school uh, began to do all the questions that they're, you know, learned to ask. And one of the questions was, is it possible that Lupe went home with another student? Lupe's mom remembered the discussion about the play date and mentioned Jaden Jones. And so the school was able to get in touch with us and put us in touch with Lupe's mom and everybody lived happily ever after. Now, the moral of this story is not never trust a pastor's kid. Although there's some good reasons not to, if you know some of the stories of my family. But the moral of the story is this. It is possible to understand a few things, but not understand how the whole thing works. And what I mean is this. Lupe and Jaden knew that they needed their mommy's permission to have a play date. What they did not understand was that they also needed their mommies to decide which day and what time and for how long. They understood a few things, but they didn't understand how the whole thing works. And the reason why I bring up this story is that it is possible, whether you have been a Christian all your life or you're not yet a Christian, to understand a few things about the Christian life, but not understand how the whole thing works works. You know, some of you, uh, I'm going to guess, have been white-knuckling it for years. You know what I mean? You're exhausted. You're on the verge of burnout. Maybe even become a little jaded and cynical. And you know that following Jesus is, is very serious and at times demanding. But you're running on fumes and you're feeling pretty lousy and miserable. And it may be that you're missing some very important things about how this works, how the gospel changes us and leads to a life of joy, which, by the way, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But others of you, you might actually be sitting pretty comfortably saying, you know, I love this grace stuff. I love the forgiveness stuff because what it means is I don't have to do anything. And that's to distort things in a different way. Because God not only wants to forgive us, He wants to change us into the likeness of His Son. You know, I, li I like to say that every Christian has two friends. Every single Christian has two friends. They're very, very close friends. They always hang out to you know, together, but they're different. One friend's name is Justification, and the other friend's name is sanctification. And if you're unfamiliar with those words, what they refer to is this. Justification means Jesus is our righteousness. Paul actually talks about this a little earlier in this letter when he says, I'm found in him, that is Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness credited to me. Justification. Justification is a very good friend. 
And justification will travel with you all your life. But there's this other friend that always comes with justification. And that friend's name is sanctification. Sanctification means Jesus makes us new. Jesus makes us holy. Jesus actually changes us. Both justification and sanctification flow from our union with Christ. Both are given to every single Christian. Justification is immediate. The moment you believe, sanctification takes a lifetime. Being connected to Jesus means we're not only forgiven and declared righteous, it means that we become part of God's renovation project. And here's the big idea for you this afternoon. Our holiness is a work in progress. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know you're involved in a renovation project, right? We can't help it. For some of us, it's, it's simply a self-improvement program. You have a goal, you want to lose weight or get better skin or live a healthier emotional life. Uh, there's, you have a plan for that, right? You eat better, exercise more, do therapy, apply lotions and creams, whatever it is you do. Because there's work to do, you have to stay focused. And then there's some sort of expectation about how long it's going to take. 12 days, right? 30 days, 6 months. Like we love this stuff. For others of us, the program is simply the life optimization program. You know what I mean? We're always trying to optimize for the best in all our relationships, in all our parenting, in all our careers. And you know what our fears are telling us? In these moments, they're telling us that something that matters the most to us is under threat. And when you live according to the life optimization program, everything always feels threatened. It's an exhausting and brutal way to live. And what I want to say to you uh, this afternoon is this. The Christian life is both like and completely unlike the renovation projects that we're all engaged in. It's like them in that there are goals and plans and expectations and works, work to do. But it is unlike them in terms of the source of real change and how it feels in our lives. And that's what I want to talk about. So let me begin with this. If you're a note taker, this is the first point. Christian living involves serious and hard work. Effort is not a bad word in the Christian vocabulary at least not when it comes to sanctification. And this is what I mean. Notice what Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 12. He says these words, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's about as radical a call to obedience if there ever was one. Now, in a room this size, uh, there's different personalities and people coming from different backgrounds. And some of us, you love hearing this. You're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm sick and tired of lazy, apathetic Christians. Get to work. But you need to remember, Jesus and Jesus alone is our righteousness. Others of us, we get disturbed by hearing this because we're saying, wait, I, I thought Jesus did it all. What is this business about working out, about obedience, about hard work? I don't like that. But we don't get to pick and choose which parts of Christianity we want to take and which parts we want to leave behind. The question is really how it all fits together. And we need to be clear about what this is saying. And one of the ways to get clear about what this is saying is to make sure we understand what it's not saying. Paul doesn't write, work for your salvation. 
like working for a degree or working for a raise. There's only one person who worked for your salvation, and that is Jesus. Nor did he say work on your salvation, like you're working on your car or you're working on your house or you're working on your resume. It's not something to fix up and improve. What Paul does say is this, work out your salvation. Maybe one of the most helpful ways to understand this is it's, it's like living out vows in a marriage. You are completely married the day you take your vows, but there is a lifetime of exploration and enjoyment and discovery and application of all that those promises mean ahead of you. Working out your salvation is essentially saying, apply it thoroughly. Weave it into the whole of your life. Leave no place untouched by it. Flesh it out in the details, in your job, in your home, in your friendships, even in the midst of your sufferings. Apply the gospel everywhere. And as I mentioned, this does take effort. This does involve our active and willing participation. There are multitudes of daily decisions that you make, whether to follow Jesus or not, apply the gospel or not. Paul isn't envisioning a casual Christianity, fit Jesus in when he's convenient, call on him in a jam. It, it's having your whole life wrapped up in him and involved in working out the implications. And this flies in the teeth of any laziness or apathy in Christian living. And Paul actually adds a phrase to this that, um, that might seem a little un, uh, unsettling. You're to do this with fear and trembling. Now, I love, I love sharing this. The Greek, it sounds like Yoda, the way it's written. Okay, I'm going to do a really horrible Yoda imitation. But this is what it sounds like. With fear and trembling, the salvation that is yours. Work it out. <laughs> Terrible, right? I warned you. What this, this is not saying that you are to live with an anxious and nervous doubt about God's favor and, and acceptance. It's an idiom. And it is an idiom that expresses our radical dependence on God in view of our own weaknesses and failures. Something really important is at stake and is happening as we work out our salvation. It's not like learning to play the guitar where if I never get, it, get around to it or don't do it, like not much really rides on that. It's more like learning to be a faithful friend or a good wife or a good husband or a mom or a dad. Saying, I can do a lot of damage if I'm a lousy husband or a lousy wife or a bad friend. You can't trivialize salvation. Something of utmost significance is happening here, and it involves serious and hard work. The gospel calls us to work out, flesh out, live out our salvation in every part of our lives. And I just want to draw kind of two implications about this first point real quick. The first is this. You can't do that alone. The command is plural. Now, I heard uh, uh, Danny. Is it Danny who was doing the, the, the... Damon. Sorry. Damon was doing the, uh, the announcements, and he mentioned all the different nations that are represented here in San Jose. You know, one they left out was southern United States. That's where I'm from. I don't know if you can tell from the accent, you know, but I like to bring a little diversity uh, to Silicon Valley. I grew up in East Tennessee. And one thing that's one of the few things that's superior about the southeastern United States is uh, our English dialect, right? We have a word for a plural you. It's y'all. 
All the yous are y'alls in the Greek. Y'all work out your salvation together. I want you to think about this. That means we need each other. That means you need the church. The church isn't an op optional extra in the Christian life. <laughs> the church is sanctification central. Sanctification takes place in a community called the church. That's one of the reasons why we have community groups at our church, and I guess you have family groups here, and that we gather in large groups and small groups, and we meet up at one-on-one. -on -one, right? There's an interdependence to the Christian life because all the yous are y'alls. Work out your salvation, and we need each other's help to do it. And here's the second implication. If the church is a place where we're working it out, it means, it's important, it's going to get messy. It ain't a neat and clean process at all. There's going to be stuff uncovered. There's going to be stuff shared. There's going to be stuff that we have to deal with, right, between each other or helping each other deal with stuff going on inside us. But if we're working out the implications of our salvation in the way that the New Testament calls us to, learning to count others more significant than ourselves, not grumbling or complaining, some of the things Paul goes on to say, rejecting rivalry and conceit, all in imitation of Jesus' self-surrender. You know what kind of mess it's going to be? It's going to be a beautiful mess. You're going to watch God make beautiful things out of ugly messes. But it's hard work. Christian life involves serious and hard work. You know, it's one thing to know uh, what you're supposed to do, it's another thing to actually do it. And this is where things get tricky and why I say it's easy to understand a few things, but understand how the whole thing works together. And I would imagine that some of you, if it's not happening right now, it may happen later or it may have happened in the past where you felt like you were burning out and maybe even wanted to drop out when it comes to Christianity. Have you ever had that thought? I've tried it. It doesn't work for me. I've tried it, and I'm not changing. I've tried it, and I don't see any real difference here. But have you ever considered that in those moments, maybe what you've been trying is not gospel obedience, but just moralism? Nike Christianity. Just do it mentality. All of it depends upon your effort. All of it depends upon your discipline. All of it depends upon your commitment, right? And the telltale sign that this is going on inside you is you say, I just need to, I just need to, I just need to, right? Or I should, I should, I should, and you should all over yourself all the time. You know what it does? It ends up crushing you or making you a fake. Gospel obedience is different because it draws on a different power. Yes, we work. The Christian life involves serious and hard work. But notice the very next phrase that Paul goes to, and this is the second point. Our work is grounded in His work. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who works in you so that you work. Right? There, there's this delicate balance here in verses 12 and 13. And notice it's not about dividing up our part and then God's part. Right, as if it's 50-50 or 75-25, it is grounding our work in His work. We work because He is working in us. Some of us have a hard time with this. 
We don't see him working or feel him, but he is. He promises to be. God is working in your life right now, determined to change you, grow you, conform you to Jesus. He isn't distant and far away. He's right here intimately involved in the details. And he is working both your own willing and working, which means he's behind those desires you have for change, which means every hint of repentance in your heart, every godly inclination, every good deed is a fruit of his work. And he does this out of sheer grace. That's what for his good pleasure means. God delights to do it. He delights to do it freely. I mean, doesn't that give you confidence? Doesn't that embolden you, encourage you to press on? This connection between verse 12 and verse 13, we work because God is at work, is so important. Because on the one hand, it keeps us from laziness. We work. We don't just go, I'm going to sit around here, hope God changes me someday. But on the other hand, it keeps us from despair. God is working no matter how slow, no matter how subtle, Right? No matter just in, in, in what varied and hidden ways that we may not fully understand right now. My favorite parables that Jesus tells about the work of God is he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman hid in dough. And you know why? Because he's saying, guys, I'm going to give you a heads up. This is going to look small. It's going to feel slow. And it isn't always going to be obvious. But when it all unfolds, it's going to be all out of proportion to anything you could imagine coming from this little seed or that little leaven. We work because God is working in us. We're called to obedience and we are empowered for obedience. Christian life is serious hard work. But we work because he's at work, right? And here's the third thing. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. I, I've seen enough people uh, go through that I'm on fire stage. I don't know if you use that language anymore or whatever. And then they just like flame out, right? Because they don't understand. This isn't about going as fast as you possibly can for 10 seconds. This is about a long distance race. And when you flip over to chapter 3 of this letter to Philippians and look at 12, verses 12 and 14, Paul actually uses this metaphor. He describes himself as a runner whose aim is to finish the race and receive the prize. And his words signal to us that this is a long-distance run. It's not a quick sprint. Notice the language. Not that I've already obtained all of this or I'm already perfect. Okay? We say this all the time at our church. No one's, no one's finished. <laughs> no one has arrived. Everybody's in process. Right? He's saying, I haven't crossed the finish line yet. I'm a work in progress. And then two times he says, I press on. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I haven't arrived yet. I don't have it all together. I'm still a work in progress. The Christian life is a marathon that lasts a lifetime. All of us have to press on. And while the goal is the same for everyone, which we're going to look at in a minute, it's worth saying that everybody's path is a little different. The path of the recovering crack addict is going to look a little different than the path of the recovering moralist. Different challenges we face, different obstacles that we encounter, 
different temptations and circumstances and conditions in which we run. But make no mistake, it's a long-distance race for everybody. And as one person put it, you've been given a whole new life to live, and it will take your whole life to live it. How do we run this race well? Well, think about marathoners. They don't run it in cowboy boots or high heels. They're not carrying a cooler or toting a barbecue grill with them. They're in very thin, very light clothing, sometimes obscenely short shorts. And the reason is, is they don't want to be weighed down. They want to get rid of the baggage. And it's funny because Paul uses this kind of imagery. You notice what he says in verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind. You can't get bogged down in your past failures or your past hurts. You know that shame can feel like this 50-ton weight on your shoulders. Paul had a past that needed forgetting. He did a lot of terrible things. And he had a lot of terrible things done to him. But he refused to let those define and direct his life. Many of us have a whole lot of things that need forgetting. Things we've done, things that were done to us. And that's not a call to denial or minimization. Sometimes we got to work through some stuff. We got to take some responsibility for things. But learning to faithfully forget means refusing to let this define and direct the course of your life. Jesus does. And by the way, it means you also can't get tangled up in your past successes and wins either. That's the road to pride. And that's where apathy often grows. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies on the he- ahead. He says, I-, I keep my eyes on the prize, right? It's brought a laser-like focus to everything. And it's created this spiritual intensity in him that's completely caught up in having Jesus define and direct his life. You know, I think there's so much here that speaks directly to our common struggles in living the Christian life, right? For some of us, our problem is we're spiritual coasters, right? We, we tend to shift into neutral. It could be we're going through a season of apathy. I just don't really care right now or laziness. I don't really feel like it. But that's actually to dishonor the call of the gospel on your life. We're called to work out the salvation that is ours everywhere. We're called to press on because God not only wants to forgive us, He wants to change us. Others of us, we got spiritual ADD. And we lose our focus in a millisecond, distracted by so many other things, chasing other prizes. Paul actually uses some strong, forceful language in verse 17 and 18. Let me paraphrase. He says, yeah, there are other prizes to pursue, other races to run, but these are a dead-end street, often driven by our basis appetites, pleasure, comfort, power, fame, money. Earthly gains, earthly rewards add up to nothing. Don't be taken along. Don't let spiritual ADD attract you, distract you. And then, of course, there are those of us who are experiencing spiritual fatigue. We're like, I'm so tired, I just can't do this anymore. And when fatigue sets in, you lose your intensity. But I want to I take another crack at this. Notice the dynamic of verse 12 in chapter 3. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Paul's intensity isn't just a result of like, I'm going to go try really hard. What he says is, I'm pressing on because I've been pressed upon by the love of God in Christ. I'm seeking to lay hold of because I've been laid hold of 
by Jesus Christ. I'm seeking to grasp more fully because I've been grasped by Jesus. I've been the object of spiritual intensity. And it has turned me into a person of spiritual intensity. Something has grabbed hold of Paul that is drawing his life again and again and again in one direction. And that is the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, right before this in chapter 3, when Paul does all that business about justification, being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but comes through faith in Him. He goes on to say, my life is now consumed with this one thing, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Grace doesn't eliminate effort. It actually energizes it. And another way to say it is, when you rest in Jesus as your righteousness, you actually begin to run the race in non-anxious and non-nervous ways. And the goal is knowing Jesus and being conformed to His likeness. And that's the last thing. The goal of this renovation project is likeness to Christ, not an idealized version of yourself. Many of us are way more interested in our Enneagram than we are in Jesus. Many of us are busy running all kinds of races besides the one that seeks to know Him and have deep fellowship with Him. We're seeking the promised land that lies at the top of our careers or in the geography of self-actualization or in the country of comfort and ease, which is another way of saying we're kind of busy trying to establish our own kingdom. But the Christian race is towards Jesus and His kingdom. And what Paul writes is, our citizenship is in heaven. and From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is running with focus and intensity because he knows how the story ends. Jesus returns and makes all things new. I love how verse 21 adds... Oh, and by the way, he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Everything's going to be made new, which means even our bodies will be made new. You and I are going to be made beautiful in every conceivable way as we are conformed to the likeness of Christ. Knowing how it ends gives us hope and endurance no matter what. And it's not wishful thinking. It's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing not even death, can stop God's purposes from being realized. A few months ago, I had a text exchange uh, with someone who, who asked me this. These are his exact words. How much control do we have over our sanctification? Like, is sanctification a kind of Christian self-improvement? And I really like this question because I think many of us wonder that. And this is what I said in response or something like this. I said, interesting question. I would actually rather cast the question in terms of responsibility, not control. You and I are responsible to actively participate in the process of sanctification. That means God calls us to repent and obey and believe and work and rest in Jesus as our righteousness. And we also got to remember that God himself has committed himself to the process. Philippians 1.6, he will complete what he began which means sometimes He is with, working with us and through us as we actively participate, 
And sometimes he's working against us when we don't. And the reason is because he loves us and wants us to be made new. The differences between this and a self-improvement program are huge. But one crystal clear difference is this. The goal of most self-improvement programs is some idealized conception of yourself. I want to be David the Great, right? I want want people to love me and think I'm really spiritual. Well, the goal of sanctification is to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And then he asked me this follow-up question. So if we do our best, God picks up the slack? And I said, nah, (laughs) God is working all along the way when we're at our best and even when we're at our worst. And I want to close with this story that I think gets at the heart of sanctification. You can think of this story as like a parable. Um, Only this story is actually a true story. And it's from a friend of mine named Ricky Jones. No relation. But it's a story that Ricky tells about how Judgment Day, the day of final reckoning, final accounting, will be for a Christian like the first Christmas present that Ricky ever bought for his mother. And this is how he tells the story. He says, I was in fourth grade, the youngest of the family, and I was tired of just drawing pictures for my mom while the rest of my siblings bought her gifts. However, there were a few things that that were getting in the way of actually buying her something nice. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to go to the store on my own. I didn't actually know what she wanted, and I didn't know how to wrap a Christmas present. Not knowing how to get around all these obstacles, I resorted to moping and sulking around the house. My mother noticed and asked if something was wrong. I told her something about not being able to buy Christmas presents for people. She nodded, filing that information away for later. That week, she looked out the window and she said, Look at all those sticks in the yard. I sure wish somebody would move them. I'd pay $10 for somebody to move those sticks. I hurried outside and collected all the sticks which was my responsibility anyways as part of my weekly chores. But just this once, my mother paid me for it. And after the yard was clean and I I was thanked and given $10, she said, I'm going to the store to do a little shopping. Would you like to come? Of course I would. On the way there, she mentioned that she'd seen some necklaces and wished she could have one. The necklaces were $9. I picked one out brought it up to the counter, paid for it, and put it in a bag. As soon as we got home, I raced back into my bedroom, and I started wrapping. The only box I could find was huge, and I tore through an entire roll of wrapping paper. No matter which way I cut, it didn't fit. So I started crying, and I brought the box out to my mom, and she wrapped it for me, making it look easy, and then placed it under the tree. Christmas finally came. I went to the Christmas tree to retrieve the present that my mother had paid for, picked out, drove me to get, and wrapped. My mom unwrapped the box, clasped the necklace around her neck, hugged me in what felt like the biggest hug in the history of hugs. And she said, I love it. Thank you so much. It was just what I wanted. She was so delighted to see how much I wanted to give her a gift, and I was so delighted to see her pleased. She was overjoyed to see me happy, and both of us were caught in a spiral of delight. Friends, this is what Judgment Day will be like for those who belong to Jesus. We're going to bring all of our good works to the Father, and He's going to remember every one of them. 
Every glass of water we gave to a child in his name, every single good intention that we had, and he's going to embrace us in a big, enormous hug, and he will thank us, even though he was the one who made all of the sacrifices to bring us his presence, he will thank us. That's how good he is. Friends, Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. What reason could we possibly have for not wanting to work out our salvation everywhere when our salvation brings us to a God like this? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we marvel at your love and your patience with us. We thank you that when we run to you, uh, unable to wrap the present, you do it for us. And that you actually bless us for an obedience that's half-hearted and mixed-motivated and uh, fickle and fleeting. Because you have given us your righteousness and you treat us not as our sins deserve, but as your righteousness earned. And Lord, we want this to work into our lives and out of our lives into the world. God, would you help us wherever we might be uh, this afternoon, jaded or cynical, lazy and apathetic, to wake up to the glory of what it means uh, to have salvation, to be numbered as a part of your family, to have righteousness credited to us, to have a future promised to us, to have a good Father who loves us and delights in us. And may it change us. Lord, we pray this not just for ourselves and our enjoyment, but that, Lord, we might be a part of the mission you've entrusted us in the world, that we might declare your goodness and declare your glory and declare your grace among the nations. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.